0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: On this episode of Big Boys Don't Cry, we discuss the film Charade. You don't have to have seen the film to enjoy the podcast, as we talk about a whole bunch of other stuff. But it probably helps if you have seen it and some elements of the plot are discussed. So if you do proceed, just be aware that there are light plot spoilers for the film Charade. Enjoy. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, have you gone? You've become a lord.
0: I, I am Lord Gordon of the House Oof. Gordon.
1: <laughs> Rob Lorden.
0: <laughs> Lorden Gordon.
1: Are you there? I am. Can you hear me? I can now. You you disappeared for a second. When you, you you were. Getting out of your your lord garb.
0: Oh, I see. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you aren't you haven't become a lord between this week's episode and last week's?
0: No, I have not. Um, as much as I've been pushing for a peerage, um, it has not yet appeared, which is a shame because I think I'd be a great, uh, completely undemocratic addition to the British political system.
1: Yeah, what you really. There are some quite cool people in the House of Lords, but it's mostly a bunch of old unelected farts who are wasting everyone's time. But, you know, there's a few people. Like um, Baroness Jenny Jones, people like that. You want to be someone like that if you're going to be in the House of Lords. You want to be, like, just someone who's fucking shit up and resisting stuff and voting against all the stupid things, don't you? I
0: mean, I... would I, I have no interest in becoming a lord until they um, accept my proposal for there to be a lord, Dave Benson Phillips. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And for everyone in the House of Lords to get gunged every time he walks in.
0: Yeah, exactly. Ev- every every week there's a new lord who gets gunged. Or maybe it's like a, rather than parents versus uh, kids or child versus teacher or the various different combinations ahead and get your own back it's commons versus lords each week
1: yeah that would be good so you got lord sugar on the one side and then liz truss on the other side or some such other awful tory and lord sugar has to give them a bollocking and then if they if they cry they get gunged and if they don't cry after five minutes lord sugar gets gunged
0: yeah exactly
1: it reminds I mean, me of a very good tweet that I saw years ago, which said, imagine being called Lord Sugar and never once dropping a hip-hop record. <laughs> I can't remember who said it. I
0: mean, that is ridiculous that he's not. But at the same time, I think we should all be thankful that Alan Sugar has never tried his hand at hip-hop because I think the uh, the end result would be enough for us to try and um, wipe out humanity as a whole.
1: Would you rather listen to Alan Sugar's hip-hop record or watch an entire season of The Apprentice in one day?
0: Oh, God. (laughs) Um, I think it would have to be The Apprentice because then you do get to see terrible people being put through awful things, Yeah, um, which is at least a bonus, whereas the only people being put through something awful through Alan Sugar's rap record would be The Listener.
1: This is true. That was a very, very fair and nuanced assessment. But the joke's on you, because I meant the American Apprentice. Now you have to sit through a whole day of Trump.
0: Oh, yeah. In that case, um, I'd go with the sugar, sugar mixtape all day, every
1: day. It's called, did you know I'm angry and I've got loads of money? Yeah. (laughs) Although I have to say that Lord Sugar has gone up in my estimation several thousand fold in the, the past week because have you seen there's been this thing going around where Piers Morgan done a tweet about how someone considers it acceptable to broadcast a picture like a cartoon that someone's done of him licking, literally licking Donald Trump's ass and he's like actually tweeted it. Um, and then Lord Sugar's gone um, and got like a huge framed version of it and auctioned it off for charity. Oh good lad. So it's Lord Sugar is good when he's dissing Piers Morgan and he does that quite a lot but other than that he's mostly angry and bad
0: <laughs> generally inoffensive angry man I guess is the best way to think of him yeah um,
1: like ish uh, angry man
0: yeah um, I never find that he's as abhorrent as some of the other like, big successful business people out there um mm-hmm. particularly given that um some of them that have a very because he doesn't have like a nice guy persona alan sugar he's quite grumpy he's um, gruff but some of the people who have supposedly nice guy personas are responsible for doing absolutely fucking horrible stuff um behind well, you mean the like the
1: people on dragon's den
0: well i was thinking more um my old my old boss richard branson who, um, oh, yeah. who you know, he's run some nice companies, but at the same time, he's um, every so often done things that are really nasty. Um,
1: yeah. He's the neoliberal dream, isn't he? Someone who's made a shitload of money, doesn't really care about anyone else, <clears throat> and makes out like he got it all through his own dedication and hard work, when actually he had a hell of a lot of luck, and a lot of things fell into place for him.
0: Yeah, and I, I think he recognises that, there was luck involved and it was sort of the, the success of the various Virgin brands came down to selling at the right time. Um, and I don't think that can happen enough for it to be purely luck. Um, but my main concern is with, with when Virgin's being contracted out for governmental work, um, which has happened various times over the years, dating back to the eighties. Um, he's very, very, although, you know, they're supposed to be a very positive company. Um, but generally, have very good PR. Um, they're very, very quick to get into bed with undermining um, support for people, um, particularly support for vulnerable people and people who rely on the state for assistance. They're very, very oh, yeah. quick to. Isn't
1: he suing the NHS right now? He, or he is suing the to... NHS right now. Oh, what a fucking knob! How this the the idea of doing that. Does he never just, like, stop for a second and go, I'm suing the NHS. I'm trying to take money and bleed an institution that was set up to help, you know, people in their hour of need, the most vulnerable people, you know, it's set up to to help people who really, really need it. Does he never just... Does it never occur to people in these situations what the fuck they're doing? Like, I just... I don't get it, man. I don't get it.
0: And, And, like, that's what really irritates me, is someone like Donald Trump, for instance... At least they wear the fact that they're a total scumbag out in the open. It's like don't don't try and make it seem as though you're a really really nice guy, and that you're making all of these business decisions out of the goodness of your heart. Because if you're a businessman, you're not making decisions out of the goodness of your heart. Like the 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 number one key important thing is improving your business, and there can be really good side effects to that in terms of improving um, people's lives. That can happen. But don't pretend that that's your number one priority. Don't go into a contract with the NHS thinking, you know what, we're doing this to improve people's lives. Don't go into trying to sue the NHS saying, you know what, we're doing this to improve people's lives. You're not. You're doing it because you have a company and you want to make money.
1: Yeah, Trump Trump labours under no such delusions. (laughs) He's not trying to present a friendly face. He's trying to present a livid orange face (laughs) with a puckered anus of a mouth.
0: I mean, the problem with Trump is that he he puts out this idea of being a angry businessman who only cares about money, but then also underneath that there's a really bitter little uh, shell that um, doesn't even care about money and just wants to ruin people's lives in the name of being yeah. a grumpy old man. It's like, okay. He kind of goes against the grain of trying to do good things from a business perspective, um, much like some of the people who supported Brexit and who are now seeing their businesses fold because they had this real sort of like stupid streak of meanness that kind of has led them down a path of self-destruction.
1: Yeah, and it is mean to not step back and think, actually, should I be doing this? Should I be doing this thing that's going to affect, you know, lots of poor and vulnerable people when maybe I could just do things slightly differently and that wouldn't have to happen, you know? But they don't think. Because the neoliberal dream is to be a kind of entrepreneurial homo economicus. You can read all about this in my PhD thesis if you want. I might actually put the link to it out because we embargoed it after I finished because I said I was going to make a book out of it, but I can't be fucked because (laughs) academia is is a load of bollocks and I'm not really pursuing it so much anymore. So I might just put my thesis out and then you can read all about how how bad neoliberalism is. Yeah, because that's what I wrote about in the context of comic books
0: remember to sell it um and sue anyone who disagrees with you
1: yeah any 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 academic who uses my research will need to pay me lots and lots of money and I'll sue them if they don't because it won't matter cuz academics all have loads loads of money
0: any any academic who uses the word comic um i think you need to sue paddy
1: yeah for i own the rights to that word i was the first ever person to use the word comic book ever
0: it is that that is an actual scientific fact just to yeah. let our listeners know um we have done the research um before that people who'd refer to things as comics and things like that but, <laughs> but paddy johnston was the first person to um refer to something as a comic
1: comac books
0: comac box
1: We've started with the the kind of the heavy chat, but that's fine. I was kind of in the mood for it because about half an hour ago, I was just idly flicking through Twitter while I was letting my dinner go down, as one does. And I saw that David Cameron had tweeted, it was the right thing to do. Um, Quote, tweeting a tweet from George Osborne linking to a piece in the FT about how the budget, like the UK deficit is... Or the budget has been balanced or whatever how he hit his austerity target even though it's two years late or whatever and they're all saying that like because some target has been met two years later that it was the right thing to do and it was a good thing when there are like studies that have proven that 120,000 people died because of austerity and i will put that link in the show notes but like yeah i was in the mood for, i was in the mood for this kind of chat so there we go yeah
0: i I saw that, and it made me furious. And then (laughs) recently I also saw that uh, America has a problem with people killing children, um, which happens far too often. Uh, There is one very obvious solution to that, which is restrict access to the tools that people use to kill children. Um, But rather than uh, investigate this, it has just been announced that Uh, Donald Trump is going to meet with the video game industry executives as part of an ongoing debate over school safety. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, uh, video games are what cause people to to go into a school and kill children. Um, It's all down to video games.
1: Donald Trump, if you're listening to this, I've got something to tell you about once you're done with the video games. It's called books.
0: (laughs) Are you suggesting that Donald Trump needs to go into uh, a library and speak to a librarian uh, and then start banning any books that involve violence?
1: Yeah, any books that have the word gun on any page are banned, along with any any films and anything. But it's okay for guns to be on Fox News.
0: Uh, What what I'd love to see, actually, is that you know that every time that something like this happens, the, the idea that video games are responsible comes out. Um, and there's always sort of like this is a they show an example of like this is Grand Theft Auto. Uh, in this game, you can kill people. Or this is Call of Duty. You can kill people. I'd love it for someone to come out with a with a book as an example and just be like, "This is Beowulf, this, because of because of this poem, because of this epic poem." Um, which has been cruelly translated into modern English to infect the minds of modern-day children everywhere, and is even taught in your local school, um, children are going to be going around cutting people's heads off, proclaiming themselves to be some kind of Nordic hero. And I think that is disgraceful. We need to ban this filth.
1: Yeah, ban this sick filth. I don't know about you, but after I read Harry Potter and The Philosopher's Stone, I got my, my scullery maid's broom out of the scullery and tried to ride it and I injured myself. So they should ban books and brooms and sculleries, even though I'm still not hundred percent sure what a scullery is. Is that
0: what happened to Jacob Bruce Mogg? Is that why he's so dumb? <laughs> is, did he get did he re, He read um he he read Harry Potter? And then he jumped on a broom and tried to fly, but then banged his head.
1: He was injured in a tragic broomstick accident <laughs> as, a, as a young boy, as a young boy of 35.
0: What, what I love is that there are these sort of like these moral panics um, when there is clearly one solution that's attributable for things like the the crisis in America with school shootings um and and they very at various times they try and blame different things so it could be marijuana um it could be video games it could be violent movies uh but my favorite one of all is uh when they tried to uh stir up controversy over dungeons and dragons in the 1980s Oh yeah. Um where they where they tried to claim that Dungeons and Dragons was turning children onto Satanism and stuff like that. And there's this like made for T V movie, and it's one of the first things that Tom Hanks was in. Um which is like this uh this uh like warning movie, basically, this public interest movie about don't let your kids play Dungeons and Dragons. And I oh, really think, I think at the end he like jumps out of a window thinking he's got like the magic power of flight or something like that. <laughs> That's it's, amazing. It's like, I've never so, seen that. Yeah, it's it's well bad. I don't think Tom Hanks is particularly keen to share that he was in this film um, when he was a young whippersnapper. But, wow. Um, but yeah, that's I'm that's find my favourite that one. Is the, show the, notes. the the idea that Dungeons and Dragons would lead to the downfall of society, I think, is a is a funny one.
1: I can't believe that that has provided in my mind a crossover or a, something that links Dungeons and Dragons and Carly Rae Jepsen. Which is the appearance of Tom Hanks in videos. Oh, there we go. You've seen the video to I really, 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 really like you.
0: I have seen the video to I really, 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 like you. One of the
1: greatest pop songs of the decade.
0: It's a good one. Call Me Maybe also. Very good song.
1: Also very good. Yeah. She's um, ho- hopefully coming out with a new album this year. I'm very much looking forward to it. But yeah, she's top notch. She's good. Believe the hype. Even though yeah, there get on it, people. As much hype so, as there should be.
0: <laughs> so, so my, my 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 favorite thing about this Trump news, Trump versus video games, um, is that this is going to lead. Well, it should lead to a bit of a quandary between uh, between GamerGate, uh, the far right uh movement that was very much about protecting video games uh there was a very heavy eye roll there and some quotation marks around that entire segment um and 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 gamergate fucking loves trump like they're all over trump uh they've even been suggestions that like gamergate was like a a prototype for the pro-trump movement in terms of like uh like uh, a groundswell of online activism from disaffected right-wingers. Yeah, or um, the
1: at- Pepe avatar large adult men who live in their parents' basement.
0: Yes, exactly. It, it's a it's a weird mixture of generally people in their teenage years and then people who are 30 plus. And, and they're the kind of people that were sort of like the core proponents of Gamergate and pushing Gamergate very far. Um, but the movement was supposedly to do with... Um, you know, protecting games and protecting the freedom of speech in games and stuff like that. Um, So now that it looks like their favourite politician ever is going to be trying to restrict that, obviously I expect all of these people to be up in arms about it and forming a movement to try and stop President Trump from doing all of this stuff. Um, I'm sure that's going to happen and I'm sure that Gamergate wasn't just an excuse to harass women. Um, and harass gay people and stuff they really like
1: they're activists who care a lot and have a, a you know a really big sense of justice and they have a lot of energy to put into social change so i'm sure they'll they'll all work really really hard to get trump impeached
0: yeah they 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 really will care because um there's been lots of bad things that have happened in games since gamergate and i've been really impressed that these people maintained that level of activism for games throughout all of the various crises that came through so i mean gamergate's been really strongly against loot boxes and gambling mechanics in video games uh they've been yeah. really really vocal on that it's not as though they disappeared off the face of the earth um i'm
1: hearing about that shit all the time left right and center yeah i, I every time i go online or go anywhere or like walk into a room someone someone's like hi i'm from gamergate let me talk to you about loot boxes I definitely yeah, it, didn't have to look up what a loot box was after you mentioned it last week. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm I'm constantly impressed with how the Gamergate crowd continued to support um, protecting games um, in various ways, rather than just harassing women out of the industry um well done guys you know you showed all of us who thought wait maybe gamergate is just a bunch of angry people harassing women out of the video game industry and they've really showed through their continued dedication to the cause that they weren't just that
1: yeah boy they they really showed us huh
0: they did they really showed us they really made a change uh to video games um beyond just scaring people out of the industry with uh Thousands of death threats.
1: You know what? I'm really, really glad that Audrey Hepburn didn't live to see any of this shit. <laughs> <laughs> just thinking about how, how do we turn this onto the film onto film chat. But um when did she die? I'm gonna look this up. Audrey Hepburn was a British actress, model, dancer, and humanitarian. I always forget that she was actually British. Let's see. 1993. So, I don't know. What games were around in 93? Had Sonic the Hedgehog come out by then?
0: I think Sonic was out. Um, Yeah, so I I think they'd had the Marios, they'd had Sonic.
1: Yeah, Um, they'd had the Donkey Kongs, they'd had the the Legends of Zeldas.
0: Yeah, so she'd seen... She'd seen some of those games come out.
1: Yeah. I really like the idea of, like, 80-year-old Audrey Hepburn playing Sonic the Hedgehog on the Mega Drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, she was only 63. That's that's no age, really. When you no, think about it's it. not.
0: Um, the one thing that I'm, you know, we, we can be grateful that Audrey Hepburn did not live to see the Super Mario Brothers movie come out because that came out later in the year.
1: Yeah, because she would have she would have realized that it's such a towering achievement in cinema that it would have rendered her entire career completely moot and she'd have she'd have had to just lie down and go to sleep forever.
0: Yeah, that that's the thing, is like the, the Super Mario Brothers movie is so good that she would have thought, you know what? I've created a classic in charade, but you know, it can't compare to Dennis Hopper and his lizard tongue.
1: that's uh that's my favorite album from the late 80s
0: (laughs) oh dear so so,
1: so she died when she was 63 which correct me if i'm wrong was roughly the age that cary grant is in this film although he doesn't look it
0: no but he is um he he is significantly older
1: let's see it came out in 63
0: so he was 59.
1: He was 59? Yeah, Damn.
0: 59 when this movie came out. And like, he does look an older gentleman in this film. He he does look older than Audrey Hepburn. But he doesn't look 59 years old, does he?
1: No, and they, they there are bits where they joke about the age gap and stuff, aren't, aren't there? But no, I'd say he looks 50 at most. Probably more like maybe in his mid-40s. Although he does look distinguished, as they say. You know, yes, a word that my mother always used always used to describe the older men in the West Wing, who she fancied, yeah. distinguished gentlemen.
0: Oh, I see. Um, but yes, yeah, so so how do you how do you feel about Sherrod? Had you seen it before?
1: I had not seen it before, apart from the version that you made for a music video for us, which was like a cut of it. So you managed to do it without completely spoiling the plot. So I sort of had a vague idea. Of events and how I thought it went, but that was very much subverted by it and by the the whole story of um, sort of is he or isn't he a kind of suspicious spy man who's trying to take the money who is who is anyone who they say they are that kind of thing. I um I very much enjoyed this film actually. I found it a very very refreshing and fun and enjoyable romp. And I know in terms of writing and subject matter, it comes from a very very different place than Breakfast at Tiffany's, which we previously watched starring Audrey Hepburn. Uh, But I couldn't help but compare the two films in my mind, just in terms of her performances. And I I actually, I felt like her performance was much stronger and everything about it was just much more engaging, really. Um, She'd been given a much better character to work with, I thought, that was quite fun. It felt like she was having fun. you know. But yeah, I I really enjoyed it. How about you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I love this film. Um, It's part of the... Part of the reason why I chose it for the Palomino Club video was because it's um, it's it's one of my favorites, and I think it's kind of like an underrated film from the era as well. Um, is people don't always think of Charade as being one of the top um, top films of the '60s, but in my opinion, I think it probably is. Um, I think I had
1: never heard of it until you mentioned you were going to do the music video, and I was like, "Oh, cool! Audrey Hepburn, Cary Grant, nice."
0: Um, and it's yeah, it's. I think it epitomises some of the filmmaking styles that are around, particularly in the early 60s. It's got that kind of, I don't know, that kind of farcical romp feel to it that was quite prevalent in the time. But it manages to sort of marry it with a very interesting, uh, like, gumshoe mystery. Um, And it's, yeah, it's a really interesting film. Um, that kind of it, it works like a really good time capsule of 60s cinema as a whole, but at the same time, it does lots of things you wouldn't necessarily expect just from thinking, "Oh, it's a 60s movie with Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn in it."
1: Yeah, because if if you compare it to the other 60s films we watched, like um, Breakfast at Tiffany's and also Barefoot in the Park as well, the humor is kind of similar, isn't it? Similar in tone. There's a lot of kind of banter back and forth between the the main characters that always that tends to make me chuckle quite a lot. That kind of thing. And also a kind of um, sort of existentialist dry humour to it as well. Like they're just sitting around and saying, oh no, I can't possibly do anything. I'm far too miserable. And sort of making big pronouncements like that that always makes me chuckle. So it's similar. It's tonally very similar to some of the other films from the 60s. But as you say, the the cross between romantic plot and the sort of thriller plot is really, really interesting. And I haven't seen very many films that really do that and make it work successfully. Um, but of course you, you, you realise it's not about will they or won't they get together, it's about kind of will they, you know, will they or won't, will it, Will he turn out to be good or will he turn out to be bad? They're kind of already together at sort of halfway through the film. It's then more about who is he really and it's more about the reveal and it sort of transitions into that quite neatly where it could easily go quite wrong.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think... You're right, it, it manages to, to toe the line really well, I think, between the uh between the sort of romance and the mystery elements. Um, whilst embedding that that humor in it. And I always think that like it's the kind of witty back and forth humour that like you won't get many outright laughs out of it. But it it, it just embeds that sense of humour. In, in the listener and sort of you'll get a good chuckle and a nice smile with the various lines of dialogue and it just helps it all k- tick over quite nicely I suppose is the best way to think about it
1: yeah it's all, all of those things are ticking over and I only realized just now looking back through my notes that there are there are kind of Chekhov's guns as it were things earlier on that presage the later action um like the, the little kid who I think is her nephew um, he wants the stamps from her early on in the film. Then you realise later on um, that the the money that she's she's been left by her dead husband is is actually two very very rare stamps. Um, and I didn't really re- make that connection until just now when I was going through my notes. But all the things like that actually do make mean that you are genuinely interested in the kind of thriller side of it as well and when he has the the shootout at the end with the guy who she who pretended to be from the American embassy but wasn't like that's all that's all it is genuinely very very thrilling and i'm not a big kind of thriller guy but i i was very very taken in by that side of it as well so it succeeded on both counts really although i'd say the the kind of thriller mystery plot was more interesting than the romance itself um i wasn't particularly bothered about whether they did or didn't get together but i was bothered about um, the money, and you know whether he turn out he he turn out to be who he said he was, or that kind of thing. But it did feel very, very satisfying at the end when all of that was revealed, and then it's like, yes, I am in love with you. Let's get married.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Um, like, if you come at this from a purely romantic angle, it's not the most quintessential, like, classic romantic movie to watch. Um, but I feel like it just it works so well together with the overall mystery. Um, that you've got those you've got those nice romantic elements in it, um, and it kind of just it helps create a chemistry between those two characters, and it helps keep you interested even more so um, in how much you trust them all. I suppose is the best way to think about it. Um, so because there's that potential romantic option there, it makes you wonder more about what Cary Grant's goal is at the end. Um, with the various twists and turns where his character is revealed to be someone else, but then revealed to be someone else on top of that. Um, like peeling layers of a very handsome onion um, to get to the true character underneath.
1: He is a handsome onion. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Gary Grant, <laughs> handsome onion.
1: <laughs> That's the name of his swing album that everyone does late in their career <laughs> when they've not got much else on <laughs> Harder. Seal has done one recently. Oh, I has just, he? As aside. Yeah, I keep seeing posters for it.
0: Oh, God. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I, it's very good. I'm sure it's fine, but it's like, come on, Seal. You've done some great stuff. You don't need a swing album. Yeah. Um, we just
1: need another another kiss from a rose. Yeah.
0: Another crazy.
1: Baby. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I, I enjoy the layers of Cary Grant being peeled back but you feel like he maybe he also doesn't know exactly what he wants either and that he's sort of romancing her whilst also doing his job and trying to get the money and trying to see the other guys off and he's kind of going along with it anyway because he's sort of like taking her out on like fancy dinners on a boat and stuff and it's like he doesn't have to do any of that stuff so you're like maybe he is in it and then obviously it turns out that he is in it for her at the end but you you feel like yeah he's not really sure either and that lends it a quite nice sort of I don't know, an element of mystery and intrigue that would, I think, feel less interesting if he was just sort of, you know, aggressively pursuing her or being disinterested and just wanting the money. It adds a level of complexity that doesn't overcomplicate it, but does make it interesting.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. Um, it's, yeah, he's a, he's a very interesting character in this film. Um, and in, in fact, I think the characters across the board are really interesting, even the ones that you only get a minor snapshot of. Um the film does a really great job of being like, Look, here's this character and you kind of know what they're about and you know a little of their complexities and things like that. Yeah. Um and yeah no This guy's
1: it... got a hook for a hand.
0: Abu Hamza? I didn't <laughs> yeah. realise he was in this film.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was his, his film debut. He's older than you think, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he looks good on it now. <laughs>
0: um
1: I um I I wrote um I wrote him a letter once, Abu Hamza. But he didn't reply. Because he's got hooks for hands. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, um, that's a Stuart Lee joke. I wish I came up with that.
0: <laughs> God bless Stuart Lee.
1: Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's the hook-handed guy who is genuinely quite scary, actually. Like, for a film that is so light-hearted, if you just take those scenes and kind of isolate them, you could be forgiven for thinking it was a much darker film.
0: Well, that's the thing. This movie really delves into the darkness quite a lot. Um, So, the first time that I watched it, I was really surprised that there was like so many murders in it, Um, and how relatively graphic they are for a romantic movie. Um, Yeah, like 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 nowadays, you could probably do this level of murder and still have a a successful romance movie well i mean just look at twilight and the number of people that get killed over the course of the twilight saga uh, yeah. in the final movie you've got people's heads being ripped off um but and it's none of that up, is, is
1: as horrible as the like cgi child that that appears at the end though like that is some of the creepiest shit i've ever seen in my life i'd rather <laughs> um, see, i'd rather watch a lot of murders than watch that
0: oh i'll have you know that that cgi child is the greatest moment in cinematic history. Yeah, I was um, that, was,
1: that is my child. <laughs>
0: that, that is my child, Paddy. That's not CGI. Um, it was yeah. real. What are you saying? So, so like, the, things have sort of, like, uh, mutated, I suppose, in cinema. Um, the, the restrictions of cinema divulged quite a lot in the 1980s in particular, where sort of, like, direct-to-video films became more of a thing. and it, Video and, and nasties. Like the, yeah and and like the world of um cinema as a whole became more popularized uh, rather than it being very much held up by the same core um core studios that were creating everything and the core production houses that were creating everything um those restrictions got broken down um and then even more so now i suppose with um with the streaming model um you've got places like uh Netflix and Amazon Prime and even things like YouTube where creators can go out and just do their own thing and put it up. Um so those kind of uh restrictions aren't that were around in the 60s aren't really in place anymore and you have m- much more variance in what you can get away with in films. Um so the first time I watched it I was very surprised there was like oh god this person's been like suffocated to death and that yeah. kind of stuff I was like <laughs> wow okay. Um but it's someone it's, funded um,
1: this. It went through a big studio. It went through all of those loopholes. It got the biggest stars. You know, it did. All, it ticked all those boxes. But I think what you're really trying to say is that in the '60s, you'd never have been able to make a Christmas Prince.
0: <laughs> well, yes, exactly. A Christmas Prince would not have existed then. It was that's too shocking for '60s audiences It'd be like, yeah. you know what? We're we're the hippie movement here, but we can't handle Christmas Prince. It's blowing our
1: minds. <laughs> I'm all for free love and everything, but a woman from America fall in lo- falling in love with a man from Eastern Europe? That's insane.
0: <laughs> An American marrying a royal family member? That's absurd. I can't get on board with that.
1: Yeah. Um, that could never happen.
0: Topical. Also topical for the <laughs> past as well, because, you know, it kind of happened, nearly. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, <laughs> um, it's uh, yeah. So it, it's quite a it's quite a bold film, and and like I've seen it referred to as like the best Hitchcock film Hitchcock never made. But
1: I did write down that it was Hitchcockian, particularly but, in the op- the opening scenes and the way that things are framed and the the way the shots work and stuff. It feels yeah, it feels Hitchcockian. It's like if if Hitchhog if Hitchhog. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's Hitch- the hedgehog variant on Alfred Hitchcock.
1: Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> it's like if um, if Hitchcock <laughs> Hitchcock decided to let his hair down uh, and you know have a little bit of fun.
0: Yeah, instead of being a cruel bastard to everybody, if he just had yeah. a bit of had a bit of amusement. Um, wasn't I, he, bald? he was very bold.
1: So he um, couldn't have let his hair down even if he'd wanted to. No, he
0: could have put a wig on and
1: then let that down.
0: Um I like this movie more than possibly any Hitchcock film though. And I don't yeah, know I if mean... that's if I don't know if that's sacrilege to say. Hitchcock's
1: but... great gr- was was great at what he did. He I think he was really really good at crafting very very thrilling and Fast-paced and very, very atmospheric stuff. And I think, um, what's the Daphne Du Maurier one? Rebecca. That one's very, very good. There's, there's all sorts of things. But yeah, you're right. I, I do think he's a bit overrated, and I don't think he's necessarily should be canonised in the same way. But his influence is massive. But yeah, I've also I, just I mean, looked I th- up a picture of him, and he looks a hell of a lot like Rod Little. So <laughs> it's not. <laughs> He's definitely a bit wrong
0: um i i think i think hitchcock he's he's one of the greats and i mean like he's he's done an awful lot for the development of uh of films particularly like thrillers mysteries, and horror movies um he's done a tremendous amount for um but like I just think that this movie holds up incredibly well and it also does things that you wouldn't necessarily expect um in a way that i don't know whether it's just cuz hitchcock's movies have become so uh so saturated in the market that they don't have any surprises for anyone anymore and i don't know whether that's part of it but i i i think this is really one of the most underrated films of of the decade
1: yeah having seen it and in, enjoyed it a lot more than i was expecting to i'm inclined to agree i didn't think i was going to hate it but i went into i went into it thinking it was going to be Another kind of you know just fun and enjoyable sixties romp, you know that kind of thing i yeah, I didn't expect to be taken in by it as much as I was, so yeah, you're right it's it's very it's definitely very, very underrated,
0: yeah, and, and it looks
1: like- it looks really good for the sixties as well, like it looks like they spent quite a lot of money on it in in the right places as well, you know all of the the outdoor scenes look really, really bright, you know it's really, really well colored and well shot. It looks, it looks nice. It looks dreamy. You know, It looks like the, the vision of kind of sophisticated, stylish 60s that you want to have in your mind, rather than one of you know, filth and dirt and lack of internet.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this movie would have been over a lot quicker if it had been around in the, uh, in the
1: internet age, I suppose. Yeah.
0: Like, it's well, quite a long the,
1: film for the 60s, isn't it, it? It
0: is, yeah. It's about two hours long. Um, which yeah, if you're not expecting it, it's a bit of a bit of an epic. Yeah, um, but but yeah, it doesn't drag. No, no, it doesn't drag at all. It feel it does feel like a long film, but it doesn't feel like it's overly long. You're kind of captivated at every step of the every step of the way. Um, whereas some of the films that we've watched from the sixties previously, you have those moments where it kind of drags. Um, in 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 charade i don't really think you ever have those moments where it drags uh noticeably i suppose
1: i mean i really enjoyed barefoot in the park but you know for, uh, from about half an hour into the last five minutes i was just thinking come on robert redford put the bin on your head <laughs> get it over and done with
0: <laughs> yeah um <laughs> but like th- i find a lot of those kind of films they feel relatively one paced um whereas charade it really amps things up and it and it really it knows how to keep the audience going with like building up the tension and then dropping it and that happens multiple times throughout the film in a way that is very prevalent now in cinema that wasn't necessarily as prevalent in the early 60s
1: yeah because if you take any one scene in isolation um you'll find that probably the scenes go on longer than you would expect them to, and certainly longer than a lot of scenes would do in a similar film that would be coming out now, I think. Like, especially the scene when he's chasing her through the metro um, and stuff with the gun. Um, that scene goes on for a very long time, but it doesn't feel like they're dragging it out because there's just enough, like, she's on the train, she's off she's off the train, she's in the phone box, she's here, there, and, and everywhere. Um, but it's, it's still, it takes its time doing what it needs to do and that feels refreshing because i think in cinema these days people often do rush into exposition and into plot and also in writing as as we know very well you're you're taught to cut anything that's unnecessary but i think there is a slight element of that in cinema and in in books and in in anything that tells a story in general of just almost not allowing yourself to have a little bit of fun with the scene you know I mean obviously some writers and directors do it very very well but I feel like there's a certain freedom in the length of the scenes that you don't you wouldn't get now
0: yeah I think you're totally right about that um it 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 does have that lengthiness to it um and it, it kind of it works quite well as a little time capsule I suppose of of like or almost sort of like a sign of where cinema was going and where it had come from. Um and and it's like it's it's sort of towing the line, it's slowly bridging the gap between sort of like the more renegade filmmaking that helped form the modern methods of cinematography, um and and the more traditional studio alignment because it was kind of after this where sort of like auteur theory really came into its own and you had quite a lot of um french directors really pushing their own trademarks into the into the industry um and um and yeah this kind of like it feels like it's nearly there but not quite but it does so in such a way that it kind of it gives you a sense of nostalgia, but without breaking the cinematic tropes and the cinematic norms that you expect from a modern day viewing experience. So I think it, it works quite well as sort of like, if you're interested in watching 60s cinema, but you've not really watched a lot of it, Sharad is a really good first step into those kind of films.
1: Definitely. It's very, very accessible. I think when, if you haven't seen much kind of 60s classic cinema... Excuse me. Um, if you haven't seen much kind of classic sixties cinema, it can seem a little bit daunting, or that it might not be what you're used to. And it's, I'd say, you know, you don't have to be particularly well versed in anything or anything about the era to just enjoy this for what it is, which is a very, very fun and enjoyable film.
0: Yeah, it's it's a it's a really enjoyable movie, um, and it's and it's so easy to get into. That um, yeah, if 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 you. If you're more aligned with like the the recent movies we've watched, then this would be a good one to go back to. Um, So like if you were sort of put off by like, "Mm, maybe I shouldn't watch Barefoot in the Park, um, then watch this and then you can go on to watch Barefoot in the Park without there being too much of like a shock to the system.
1: Yeah, definitely. When you were talking about French directors, you meant uh, Luc Besson, right?
0: Of course I meant Luc Besson. That he's yeah. the only French director. <laughs>
1: he's the only French director in history. Uh, so, <laughs> you, have you seen Valerian and the City of How Many Thousand Planets?
0: No, no, I haven't. No, I, haven't I
1: have. I haven't either. But they um, they talked about it on the most recent episode of the Flophouse podcast, and they they made it sound really, really bizarre and weird and interesting and terrible in a good way. And I really want to see it.
0: Yeah, I I um I really want to watch it. Um I I I find those kind of big budget sci-fi flops fascinating because they always go for something bold. Um and like there's nothing worse than a boring science fiction movie. Yeah. Um if you're going to do sci-fi, you should do something interesting with it. Um so I'm I'm really excited to watch um, Annihilation, which is the new Alex Garland uh, film. I um, haven't heard about
1: that.
0: It's based on um, a book by someone who I've forgotten the name of. And it's a very, uh, oh, Jeff Vandermeer. Oh, Um, yeah, right.
1: And it's, that name rings a bell.
0: Yeah, and it's a really interesting book. But it's one of those novels that you read and you think, oh, God, that's unfilmable. How are they going to make a movie out of that? Um, Because it's like, it's a really strange read. Um, And so Alex Garland has made a movie out of it um and obviously he's a he's a, he's already proved himself to be an incredible filmmaker with Ex Machina um and previously mm. obviously a great script writer and a great novelist himself um and uh he's he's made this and I, I don't think it holds anything back I think it is genuinely supposed to be incredibly strange um but that strangeness has caused uh studios to not want to show it in cinemas Oh no. So it's had its um it's had its theatrical release in America, but it's not getting a theatrical release anywhere else in the world, and instead they're sending it straight to Netflix. Um which, which I think is really disappointing because this is the kind of movie that clearly would be incredible on a big screen, and instead it's immediately just going to smaller screens because they're scared about it not like reaching a good audience immediately.
1: That's really interesting. That Obviously, that's kind of seen as an option that is very much an option that you could do these days rather than even bothering with cinemas. And I worry that that's going to happen a lot more, actually, that people think that people won't take a punt on this in the cinema, but they will in Netflix. Let's just get it out of the way. You know, I'd like to have seen A Christmas Prince on the big screen, but it wasn't even an option.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, have you heard about um, the Cloverfield paradox and the whole sort of the, the, like... They released it. That.
1: Um, they released it completely unexpectedly, and nobody knew knew that it was coming.
0: Yes, that's right. Um, and yeah. it turns out that it's not very good. And so people oh, no. have been thinking: mm, Did they kind of come up with this crazy release schedule after they realised the movie wasn't very good?
1: Because that was um, the only way to successfully because, market it.
0: Yeah, because they probably wouldn't get any return on releasing it in cinemas, for instance. Um, and people have been kind of speculating that m- that might have been the case because the original film wasn't initially part of the Cloverfield sort of like loose cinematic universe. Because uh, there've been three Cloverfield films now, none of them really connect to one another that well. Um, and this one tried to tried to tie the three films together a little bit, but not really. Um, and yeah, so it's a bit of a um, it's a bit of an odd one. Um, and I, I, I don't think it's as bad as people have been making it out to be. People have been saying it's terrible. And it's like, it's not terrible. There's been worse movies released in cinemas. Um, but they clearly felt like the safest option was to do this. And like the safest option to ensure that people watched it was to incorporate like Cloverfield y elements into it to make sure that that kind of branding helped bring in a few people.
1: Yeah. I mean, Table 19 got released in the cinemas. So. <laughs>
0: Uh, that, that was nearly called uh, The Cloverfield Table. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what is a Cloverfield?
0: It's a field of clover. Um, I don't know if they ever properly explained what relevance Cloverfield had. So the first movie was a found footage version of Godzilla, basically. This big monster attacks New York, and then it follows these people that were filming a um, someone's birthday party. And then it's just their footage of the events that followed on.
1: Bare um, footage in Central Park.
0: <laughs> um and um and yeah, initially sort of like they were making some very cool comments. The director was making some very cool comments about potential sequels saying it's a standalone movie, but there's a bit in the film where you see people crossing a bridge and they they film someone else who's filming the monster. Like just very briefly, and they were saying, like, well, it kind of makes the point that this movie would have been one sequel one movie of the same night with like hundreds of sequels of other people who are filming it. It's like, Oh, that's a really right. cool concept. But instead of doing anything like that, they then release 10 Cloverfield lane. Um, which is like, there's been some kind of biological attack. Someone's in a car accident and wakes up in, uh, in John Goodman's bunker.
1: Oh, um, I mean, we've all been there.
0: I mean, I'd, I'd love to wake up in John Goodman's bunker. um but um but yeah and then it's a whole sort of like has there really been an attack has there not am i his prisoner am i not is he crazy is he not um and then it it's a really interesting film and then the last 10 minutes it goes completely mad and kind of vaguely ties into cloverfield as a whole and you're like oh okay i don't really i i personally don't really care for the final sort of like 10 minute twist um it's not really my cup of tea but i i can understand i do like,
1: like it when a film a film is all over the place and then it tries to tie it up at the end in the last 10 minutes and fails i always quite enjoy that
0: yeah whereas where this movie kind of uh it ties it all up with 10 minutes to go really successfully and you're like all oh, right and then the last 10 minutes it's just like oh by the way here's this additional huge bit of information try and deal with it and you're like Oh, okay oh god um and it doesn't in my opinion it doesn't really work but i can understand why people really like it and then the cloverfield paradox is there's these people on a space station they've got this like higgs boson thing and they're trying to find a form of like renewable energy because the world is dying cuz we've run out of fuel basically um but it creates like a they, they by using the machine they kind of jump into a parallel universe and then it's all like, what else has happened with the parallel universes? And it, it's kind of dumb. It's like a dumb science fiction adventure movie. It's got kind of vague, vague elements of alien, but not really. Um, kind of like a stupider version of sunshine.
1: Um, that sounds like a, a dumb person's idea of an intelligent science fiction film.
0: Yeah, and and that's how it feels. It's like someone's going to watch this and think this is the smartest thing in
1: the universe. It's <laughs> kind of like. Have you heard of um, Jordan Peterson?
0: Oh yeah, the the idiot's smart man,
1: the asshole professor. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's exactly the same thing. Um, I, someone described him as the the, <laughs> the the stupid person's smart person, which is wholly and entirely accurate. And I, yeah, that's exactly what this film sounds like to me, having not seen any of them. But. Yeah, he's
0: he's baby's first steps into the M uh, MRA movement. It's like, oh my God, did you know this thing? And this professor who's a science man said it. It's like, yeah, "Yeah." well, this professor who's a science man person is a fucking bullshitter who doesn't know what he's talking about.
1: He is completely full of shit. He just happened to luck out into a tenured professorship some years ago with some vaguely interesting psychology research that no one else was doing. And now he has a platform to spout bollocks and people are buying it because he's a professor. Nah, he's
0: He's kind of like the alt right version of Richard Dawkins, where it's yeah. like he's someone who was vaguely accomplished um, in a very specific field, but then he's branched out into another field and is showing his complete ineptitude in that field. But because he's got this previous knowledge base behind him, people think that he's an authority. Um, so, like Richard Dawkins, like he's a, he's a genius in some aspects, but don't get him started on theology because he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about.
1: He's, um, he's a genius in shitposting on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, like, you know, you know
0: what I mean? If you're, a, if you're a professor, you have a very, very specific knowledge base, and fair, fair play to you, you have done great things to reach that point. But you can't then use that to jump into another subject. And expect that people aren't going to criticise you when you they sh- you show your naivety and your ignorance.
1: Yeah. Whereas, and you know, Dawkins also tweeted that he'd seen a dog and bitch indulging in, in full sixty nine. <laughs> have, <you, laughs> have you seen this tweet?
0: I have not. No.
1: Google well, Google Richard Dawkins sixty nine tweet. Oh God! It's do still I... up. It's unbelievable. It's it's not. Super rude,
0: but I'm scared that if I search Dawkins 69, it's going to come up with
1: yeah. Make, make sure things. you add tweet. <laughs> we'll put this in the show notes. <laughs> I've a seen a dog to... and bitch
0: indulging in full 69. Okay, Richard. <laughs>
1: So, someone's done a tweet that says, I can't quite believe I'm asking this, but do any other species have oral sex? Ten are on bonobos and or dolphins. And Dawkins has replied, what? <laughs> replied saying, I've seen a dog and bitch indulging in full 69. Males of many species, including drosophilia, lick female genitals before copulation. Thanks, <laughs> Richard Dawkins.
0: <laughs> and I mean, like, I think it, it's a you know fair fair play there, there must have been some study somewhere into uh, oral sex among animals um, but like it's just it's the way that he's put I've seen a dog and bitch indulging in full 69 it's <laughs> as if he's like he's walking down the road to his corner shop to buy paper <laughs> and he's like just looking over and on the, on the pavement on the other side of the road there's just these two dogs 69 and he's like my <laughs> god like- this changes
1: everything <laughs> He's like, oh, there it is. I'll save that for, you know, I'll I'll obviously be asked about this someday. So there it is. That knowledge is in my head now. Full 69. (laughs) As if there's there's like half 69. (laughs) (laughs) That's not nice. Also, have you seen the, um, would Richard Dawkins touch a poop for $20? No. (laughs) (laughs) Even better. (laughs) Yeah. As a guy tweeted, he was blocked by Richard Dawkins. Tweeted him. I think Dawkins must have unblocked him or whatever. I says, "Oh, Richard Dawkins blocked me for this. He's found out." Dawkins goes, "Oh, if you were blocked, it must have been a mistake. Sorry, unblock now." And the guy replies, "Thanks, Hardy. Since I've got you, do you care to answer the question I posed?" Dawkins replies, "Please repeat your question. (laughs) Question is, would you touch a poop for twenty dollars?" And then Dawkins replies, "Oh yes, I did block you for that, and now I do so again. Goodbye." <laughs> <laughs> oh God! So obviously, now every time Dawkins does a tweet, someone replies, "Would you touch poop for twenty dollars?"
0: <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so oh, even dear. though
1: he's terrible, his his Twitter game is good, or at least it was three years ago. I don't yeah. know what he's up to. He's,
0: now. he's he's prime troll. I mean like he's a he's a massive bull bag, is old Dickie Dawkins. Um yeah. but like at least he 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 isn't as awful on Twitter as some of the other people. Um but he, he does have this weird sort of cult of personality around him. It's kind of it's similar to like the Julian Assange people. Oh god. Um where he's like the worst there's like people who follow them in absolute reverence and are like, Oh my god, Richard Dawkins said this, therefore I must immediately
1: yeah. Richard Dawkins, Julian Assange, Jordan Peterson, they're all stupid people, smart people.
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and uh the, the surviving hitchens as well.
1: Yeah. Um he least... also recently did a tweet last week that said I automatically block anyone who sends me gifts. You can imagine what the reply is.
0: Yes, I saw that. That was great. <laughs> um and I also saw that he accidentally tweeted his own name. Um the other day. A classic.
1: But Ed Ball's Day isn't till next month though. No, it's I true. think it's April twenty
0: sixth. Oh, is it? See, like yeah. I think like no Could one else can do game, it apart right? from
1: Ed Balls. Yeah. It's becoming too commercialised.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we need to get back to Ed Ballsday Day roots.
1: Yeah. We need to rediscover the true meaning of Ed Ballsday Day. <laughs> oh dear. Oh. So yeah, on going back to Sharad, Sherade, Sharad, Um who the fuck's called Carson Dial? That's not a real name.
0: No. It's it's like um, Dodge.
1: <laughs> Dodge. <laughs> Dodge Dial. That's his, yeah. That's the other brother. Yeah. But no, I th- it sounded like a sort of made-up spy thriller name. It was appropriate. Like, that man is Carson Dial. Great. I yeah. love all the way-, the way that they talk in all these films. Does seem kind of really, really classic and iconic, doesn't it? In a way that you're used to it, perhaps being portrayed in other film and other popular culture. That this is how people talk in films in the 1960s, and then when you watch a film from the 1960s and they actually talk like that, you're like, "Yes, this is how I want it to be."
0: Yeah, it's like I'm gonna go down the road and get myself a bear claw. Do you want one?
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it's it's great. I love I love I, I often mimic that kind of talking style. Um, yeah, it, it happens regularly for me. I love it. Uh, I absolutely and him love saying
1: that. like all of the snappy lines in it, stuff like, Do you know what's wrong with you? Nothing. It's all little stuff like that. Like that kind of deprecating humour is very, very pre- pleasant and fun. And it's yeah. It makes a nice refreshing change that to have the both parties kind of bantering with each other in those classic voices. It's a bit it's more sassy and more silly than you expect as well. Like there's also the scene where he showers with his clothes on. And he's like, he's yes, really, really yeah. just like having really like messing around. And they're like, did people do that in the 60s? Because obviously you, you think of like the free, the whole free love thing and sexual revolution and whatever. But like, in terms of humor, you 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 imagine that people were a bit more straight laced, whereas actually, his, his, there's some really like quite jokey, playful stuff in this film that yeah. makes you almost reassess the way you, it made me reassess the way I thought about that era.
0: Yeah, there's some real silliness. Um, to this movie, which is great. Um, Regarding the shower scene, uh, the sexiest shower scene in cinema history, I might add. It's hot. Um, So it was agreed that... Several
1: layers of the handsome onion come off at once. (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah, it was agreed that Cary Grant would keep all his clothes on when he took a shower as he was nearly 60 and slightly overweight. Um, I mean, I I know that feels Carrie Grant. I often don't want to take off my clothes because of my pudginess when I have a shower yeah, tell me about without it. any cameras around. Um, um, however, they then decided to keep the scene as it was because it was funnier that way anyway. So like, okay.
1: So he was going to take his clothes off, but then he they said he shouldn't, and then he decided to sort of mess around, and then that was the scene that got that made it into the film. Yeah.
0: So so originally it was agreed that he would keep all of his clothes on. Um, and they were like, "Oh, okay, we'll do it that way." But then it was like, "Oh, actually, this is really funny," and they kept it in. So I, th- I guess originally it was like, "Oh, maybe you should take his clothes off." But it's like, "No, keep your clothes on." That's
1: cool. Well, like, some of the language and some of the phrases are quite are quite interesting. It did make me laugh. Like there's a bit where he's when he's in a room with all of the other with the three kind of shit spy blokes. Um, he's saying, "Now, don't be piggy, Herman." Yes. <laughs> It's um and there's is it oh, is it the um the guy one of the guys who's like laughing because he thinks he's found him out and he calls him a nincompoop and like I never thought that that is a word that I would see I would hear on screen
0: but it's a it's a great word and where better to use it than in a sixties um thriller thriller romp type thing
1: yeah and he calls him a greenhorn. I don't know what that means, but he's laughing and he's like, you greenhorn, you nincompoop.
0: (laughs) It just made me think of this, that great Simpsons episode where Homer Simpson gets called a greenhorn. And he goes, who's a greenhorn? What's a (laughs) greenhorn?
1: Yeah, just that was basically what was going on in my head.
0: Um, And then before
1: that, he says, um, you fell for it like an egg from a tall chicken. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's that, that made a me very laugh. bizarre but incredible expression that definitely needs to be brought back into contemporary usage
0: um, greenhorn just for reference it is a person who is new to or inexperienced at a particular activity
1: oh it's like if someone's green yes Yeah. Um, if someone's green and horny
0: <laughs> Yeah, if you're new to an experience but you're also in the need of some sex then you are a greenhorn
1: yeah that's what the Weezer song, Where's My Sex, is about.
0: <laughs> is it? Is it called Where's My Sex, parentheses, Greenhorn?
1: <laughs> yeah, by Rivers Greenhorn. <laughs> actually, the, the Green album is actually called the Greenhorn album, but people always just shorten it to the Green album because it's easier. <laughs> It's easier to understand cuz no one knows what a greenhorn is.
0: Yes. Um also uh the the members of Weezer they actually refer to hash pipes as green horns.
1: Um, <laughs> I got my green horn tune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's also a bit where they make a joke about peppermint flavored heroin. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes there is isn't there interesting.
1: again it's a good example of how there was they actually probably did have a fair bit of freedom back then just in terms of regulation and political correctness and what might be seen as kind of unsavory content to children the kind of moral panic element that's you know it it is just definitely absent from it in terms of they can get away with having some murders and having some jokes about heroin and stuff and it's all just kind of all quite kind of good-natured isn't it
0: yeah yeah i think the what's interesting is the way that um, that cinema and television have kind of gone back and forth over regulation um, and over like restrictions of what's acceptable and what's not. Um, so like nowadays you'll see a lot of like TV shows are actually much more out there than their film counterparts can get away with um, because of like Netflix and things like that and like HBO can do whatever the hell they want. Whereas, like, if you try to make a, if they tried to make a Game of Thrones movie off the bat, for instance, I doubt there'd be as much boobies and blood in it as the yeah. TV show has. Um, not that it's entirely necessary. I think lots of people really promote, like, oh yeah, Game of Thrones is really adult. It's like just putting some tits into something doesn't make it adult. Um, and yeah, like there's a, there's a scene in the first series of Game of Thrones which still bugs me. Um, I I didn't get on board with Game of Thrones as a television series until the second series. I was like, I've
1: still never watched it. I think I accepted that I probably never will because there are so many hours of it, and I'll never get round to it. I might read the books someday if I end up going on holiday for a while and I want to read a, uh, like a fantasy series because I do on occasion read the read a long fantasy series. But yeah, never watch the TV show. Probably never will. Yeah, so the, you can um, spoil it for me.
0: Well there's one scene in the first series that really irritates me where they're having this political conversation it just happens to happen in a whorehouse where there's lots of people having sex and you can be like oh yeah look there's some boobs around I wonder why they put this scene in and it's like yeah. it's just so obviously meant to be titillating for no good reason apart from to show that it's adult
1: Yeah and like it's for kind sure of got
0: over um it's it's for kind sure of it's got over boobery. that now um and entirely which is nice Um, because it's like, it doesn't need to prove itself to anybody that it's a serious television show. Everyone gets it now. But at the same time, some of the older fans are like, oh, I miss all of the scenes where people were just sitting around talking and there's tits everywhere. It's like, no, show me some fucking fucking dragons eating people. That's what I want out of Game of Thrones now. I want zombies fighting dragons fighting people. And then a little bit of backstabbing.
1: The sentiment of the people who made Game of Thrones thinking we have to have lots of... Like gratuitous boob shots in there to hook people in is exactly the same sentiment as Tommy Wiseau behind the scenes of The Room saying, I have to show my ass or this movie won't sell. It's the same.
0: But the, the thing is that, depressingly, I think they were probably right, but not for the reasons they expected. It's because to hook people into a TV show, they wanted, like, if they did something like that, they'd get people talking about it. And yeah. it's just like, ugh. Uh,
1: so and uh, I think it, it, it is... It it did genuinely work. It it, it hooked people in.
0: Yeah, and it, it's just so disappointing because it's like, and the previous seasons have shown that they don't need that shite. But the first season that everyone's like, oh, wow, it's so good. It's like, it's not really. It's a bit boring and irritating. Yeah. I
1: um, really want them to make a series of the Wheel of Time that follows all of the incredibly tedious detail of the books as closely as possible. Whereas like you get all of book 10, which is basically just a thousand pages of kind of... Magic world, ecclesiastical politics. I I want that. I want that TV show, and I want it to be really unpopular.
0: <laughs> well, they are making a Wheel of Time TV show now.
1: Yeah, um, I know. And I but it's be- been in development hell for such a long time, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, and now it's it's properly going forward with Amazon. Um, oh, really? And um, and what what I think's great is that you said that you you really want that boring see like tenth novel series where nothing happens and like if if the wheel of time takes off and it is very popular which it w- very well could be um there's going to be fans that are furious that all of the boring details of those books are cut out
1: yeah you'll you really never angry. please the fans there it's is like, no way what, you will ever please the fans why
0: are you not chase? spending three episodes of people walking through a field <laughs> not doing anything why are you not doing that you've dumbed it down for the television audience um if if there's anyone out there who likes uh fantasy books and likes interesting fantasy books by the way uh the gentleman bastard series of books by Scott Lynch is really good. Um which that, is also
1: um, sounds like the kind of book that you would write.
0: <laughs> it's the book I read about you, you gentleman <laughs> bastard. <laughs> um it's the first the first book is called The Lies of Loch Lamora.
1: Hmm.
0: and it's kind of like a um almost like a fantasy Venice about a bunch of rogues but in a, it's in a sort of like fantasy world with, where like magic and things like that still exist um, and it's it's really good um, and they are really good so I highly recommend anyone who's a fantasy fan out there to
1: get, get I know ones. a number of people who have worked professionally with Scott Lynch and say that he's a great guy
0: yeah I've heard nothing but good things about him as well um, he seems to be a real good chap
1: um, a good egg yes he ain't um, no greenhorn
0: he is not he's not a greenhorn now no
1: he's no um, poop.
0: he's um i think it's going to be seven books long the gentleman bastard series at the moment i think there's only three um no but
1: <laughs> that's cool yeah
0: but they're good they're good get on it get in now before they make a tv series out of them do it um, so, uh, in terms of Sherrard, it's probably worth talking about the fact that the film fell into public domain because of a cock-up.
1: Yeah, what's the story here? Because I, I saw some stuff about this, but I'm not really aware of the, the what actually happened. So, fill me in, brother.
0: So, basically, they forgot to put a copyright notice on it when it was released. So, it just said... Uh, by universal pictures company and stanley donan films all rights reserved but no copyright or putting the symbol copyright in
1: so they didn't put the little um, c
0: so they didn't put the little c and at the time that meant that it was not actually copyrighted
1: <laughs> that's amazing
0: um yeah um so it so it immediately entered the public domain um, so immediately people were just like yeah pirated copies everywhere that kind of thing which I, I guess might have some might be some of the reason why it's not been as remembered um, as some of the yeah. other films from the era
1: You'd think that that might have caused it to be remembered more as a kind of landmark example of that and also in terms of it having a popular a populist surge of people sharing it by pirated means you'd think that that kind of myth surrounding it might have endured perhaps more than the film itself
0: yeah because that kind of led to the the further legacy of like night of the living dead for instance um was that because that was in public domain you had various bases showing it in cinemas and things like that that kind of helped build its legacy beyond its initial release but here i don't know i mean what i imagine might have happened is that universal tried to clamp down on it very quickly and wherever possible tried to clamp down on it um but uh but whether um whether that that is the case i'm not entirely sure um so um technically i think i don't know whether it's still under public domain now but it certainly was for a very very long time Hmm. that's Um,
1: that's really really interesting and they weren't able to kind of to clamp down on it or to get it back easily to claw that back
0: no and um I, th- I think it may well still be under public domain because I've just checked and it is on archive.org. So I think I think it is still technically public domain. Although I imagine that, like, because it uses uh, licensed music and things like that, that maybe the entire thing isn't public domain. Yeah, but, but there's the definitely some 95
1: year old French guy getting paid for the background music when they're on the boat. <laughs>
0: yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, it has now had sort of like Criterion releases and things like that. Um, and yeah, it it looks nice. You can't go wrong with a Criterion.
1: Yeah, it's very, very good. What else do we have to say about this? I just have to say, I I thought Audrey Hepburn's performance was great and she looked absolutely ravishing, as did Cary Grant. It was all a film full of handsome people. But then the, the contrast between the handsome people and the the ugly sort of spy people who are pursuing them was quite evident. And I also have to say that I always enjoy a good fight on a roof and it didn't disappoint from that point of view either.
0: Yeah, it does have a good roof fight. And you're you're right there, you cannot go wrong with a roof fight. It always adds a nice bonus element to it. Um, I'll, One thing I'd like to say is that it's got a really irritating kid in it.
1: Yeah, the kid is quite annoying.
0: Um, The li- little French kiddie not not
1: the not the
0: not the worst kid in a movie ever but not the best either no um
1: it, at least he doesn't have spina bifida and there's no cure <laughs>
0: that's true um
1: but yes but uh, he he does collect stamps and you know collecting stamps is the worst hobby you could possibly have even then <laughs> even in France in 1963 there must have been better things to do for a kid than to collect stamps
0: yeah jean louis what are you doing um, th- Jean Louis. Th- this was the only film that the child actor was in.
1: Right. And also, I'm, I'm just going to say it. Even for a six year old, his acting was pretty wooden.
0: Yeah. Um, like,
1: he seemed very, very nonplussed and not bothered by the fact that he'd been kidnapped by some pretty scary dudes, one of whom had a hook for a hand.
0: <laughs> yeah, and he was pretty chill with it, wasn't he?
1: He, he was, he was surprisingly chill throughout the whole thing, which just, yeah. So all the scenes with the kid, it actually felt a bit strange to me. It was like they were just kind of using the kid for, I don't know, either some kind of cutesy angle or because the innocence of the child with the stamps, I suppose, it's all about the stamps, isn't it? That it kind of betrays the the true, the, the salubrious nature of the stamps. And yeah, his innocence around them contrasts with the, the fact that all the dudes are trying to all the bad dudes are trying to get him.
0: Yeah, he's generally just like,
1: eh. But um, really, they should have just got a dog instead.
0: Yeah, I mean, it should have been a dog that ran
1: off with the stamps. A Bichon Freeze.
0: <laughs> yes! <laughs> that would have been amazing.
1: Yeah, and then you, it just turns into a dog a dog chase. A dog charade.
0: Oh, that would have been amazing.
1: So yeah, I'm gonna to have to mark it down for that. But other than that, very very enjoyable film.
0: <laughs> well, there we go. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I think I'm done on that. Do you have anything else to add?
0: No, I think
1: um, I think that is it for me. Cool. How are we going How are we gonna rate this? Something to mm. do with stamps.
0: Uh, how many hook hands? Maybe.
1: How how many hooks? How many spare hooks do you have for your hook hand hanging up in your yeah. hook closet, which I assume that all hook-handed men have.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> you just have one for each occasion.
1: Yeah, one for each murder that you're doing. If you're a villain in this kind of film.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Um, I'm going to give it a 16 out of 20. I feel like it's very, very, that's pretty high, but it's, you know, it's not necessarily pushing into the very, very top range because I said it was just a, just a little bit long and kind of elements of the style and the language are, um, a little bit dated, but it only, that's just only in the way that any film from that era would be. I think. So, yeah, it doesn't feel dated at all. It holds up really well. It's really good fun and interesting in the way that it combines thriller and romance and everyone in it is handsome and talks like a classic person. So, yeah, it's a very successful film. 16 out of 20. Excellent. Um
0: I'm going to go for um, 17 out of 20. Um, you go. Very, one up. Yeah, I was very nearly going to go for 18, but I think like, ah, oh, that is a that is a nine out of ten'm not
1: that's sure very very high I,
0: yeah, I need to keep those for movies that are really, really special, and like this is a yeah. great film, I think it's one of the best films of the sixties, um and I think it's a really underrated movie for like hepburn fans or or fans of this, this kind of film in general um if you haven't seen it go and watch it if you're not even even if you're not into this kind of film in general go and watch it because it's a great landmark of that era of filmmaking
1: yeah um, i think it's it's got something for everyone like even if if you're just interested in film in general it's a really really it's a good one and an interesting one to see whatever your whatever your taste is i think in film there'll be you'll find something in it to enjoy
0: yeah um so I can't I can't really recommend this enough for people to go and watch but it doesn't it doesn't quite have the emotional impact that a film would require to get into my nine out of ten or ten out of ten but one day I'm sure we'll find that movie
1: well I'm pretty sure it's going to be when we when we get around to watching Fifty Shades of Grey (laughs) (laughs) well Uh, now that the third one's out I guess we can do the whole trilogy like we did with Twilight which would be fitting
0: yeah that would be good um, yeah, whether we split it out into individual episodes or whether we do the whole hog, it's something we can decide at a later time. Um, but yeah, so so it's it's really good, Sherrod. It's a it's a classic. Watch it.
1: It is it is excellent. I highly recommend it.
0: Yeah. So what cool. are you doing? So, go watch it. Come on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Go watch it right now. Actually, no. Listen to the rest of the show first. <laughs> You've only a little bit of time left because we've had we've had some correspondence. We've had an email. From my dad, MJ, He's very much enjoying the latest shows. Two things: one, I think this below. Oh, you can't see it, but I'm opening up an image. Is the crisp man that Rob couldn't remember? It's the tatoes man, Irish <laughs> specialty. Tatoes are the best crisps in the world. Is he correct?
0: He is correct. I was <laughs> after the episode. I was searching around for crisp man. And I came across the Tato's man. And it's was like, yep, that's it. That's the one. And they are unbelievably underrated crisps, Tato.
1: They are excellent. I've sorry, I've just Googled Tato crisp man. And there's the, the kind of classic, you know, yellow one that's on the bags. And then there's a sort of slightly creepier updated version where he's got rosy cheeks. And it's a bit odd. Yeah, And then can, some, can. someone's got a tattoo of the Tato man <laughs> <in> their arm. <laughs> 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 and there's a book called mr tato the man inside the jacket what what (laughs) there's a goodreads listing for a book called mr tato the incredible story of one man's journey from the tilling fields of ireland to become the nation's top potato i can't tell if this is a joke (laughs) (laughs) Um... well it's got an isbn seems to be legit
0: Oh, there we go. Um, but yeah, so tato-, tato Man is the person I was thinking of. Um, yeah. tato- tato's are great.
1: They're very, very nice. And he's a-, a potato in a suit where weirdly sort of like the, the proportions of the potato in the suit look correct, but it still looks humanoid enough to not be weird. It's a really, really well-drawn ca- like advertising character, the Tato Man, Mr. Tato.
0: Yeah. God bless him. He's the best. Um, yeah. so yeah what other, what other correspondence do you <laughs> and
1: then he goes He goes on to say point two I won't have you ragging on Casualty which preceded ER by at least six years and is the longest running medical drama in the world okay it is poor now but it was appointment to view TV when it started hmm, interesting well there we go the, you know, like I said bef- you know, pre-internet really was a dark age wasn't it <laughs> yeah um, having to watch Casualty
0: <laughs> yeah I remember my fakes used to watch Casualty when it was on and I'd be like mm, I don't really understand why this is popular
1: I'm off to watch Cary Grant shower with his clothes on yes I'm off
0: to watch a nearly 60 year old man take a shower <laughs> with
1: his clothes on and um, he's, just, he's got a couple of film recommendations we've got The Baxter and They Came Together neither of which I've heard of, have you?
0: no I'm just going to give it a little search.
1: I'm assuming that The Baxter is about um, Will Ferrell's dog from Anchorman.
0: (laughs) Definitely. Um, No, I don't know The Baxter. It's got Elizabeth Banks in it.
1: Oh, she's good.
0: But, um, yeah, I don't recognise that one. What was the other film?
1: They Came Together. Mm, If it's just trolling us with a porno then I'm going to be very unimpressed
0: (laughs) it has uh it has Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler in it and Bill Hader
1: oh okay I'm Um, down with all them I'm I'm a
0: fan of all those people so yeah sounds interesting
1: cool but it's my choice next and I'd already sort of thought of a few things but um I'm going to give you a choice of actors and then you can well, I'll give you a choice of two actors. You pick one and then that'll be the film. So Pierce Brosnan or Nicolas Cage? Oh, Paddy. Paddy <laughs> I know it's, Paddy, like, Paddy. So, it's like Sophie's choice. <laughs> that is
0: a really... Can, can you make me a promise?
1: I'll make you a promise. Whichever yeah.
0: one I don't choose this time, can you choose in a fortnight's time?
1: Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's just about the order in which we do things.
0: Yeah, okay. Um because if I I don't think I could handle it if I missed out on one
1: I know, I know.
0: For the other. Um It's a toughie. Let's go Pierce Brosnan this time. Get a bit cool. of Bronholm.
1: Well, a bit of Bronholm. We haven't have we had Bronholm on here before? I don't think so, no. I don't think we have. Well good this is good news then, because it, the time has come for us to watch Mamma Mia.
0: Alright. I'm down with that.
1: I've been um, thinking a lot about musicals in light of the popularity of the film The Greatest Showman at the moment. Have you seen it? I haven't, no. I have not either, but it's really, really interesting that it got to number one in the UK box office in the sixth week of its release, which is incredibly rare. And it's had this this kind of slow burn, but... Um, apparently I heard Mark Kermode talking about this on his podcast. He's saying that the first time he saw it, I think was at a press screening or saw it on his own and didn't really get it, thought it was rubbish and all over the place. And then he went to see it in a cinema packed out full of people, some of whom knew it and were singing along and stuff. And that the the experience of being in the cinema gave totally changed his perspective on the film. But it's also a musical, and I've been thinking a lot about kind of the musical film genre and how difficult it is to pull off... And then made me think. Well, maybe we, maybe we could watch *Mamma Mia*. So, yeah. Plus, so we've talked about *Les Mis* and *La La Land*. I guess counts as well. But it's been a while since we talked about a musical, so I feel like it's a good time.
0: Yeah, now I'm on board with that. Sounds great.
1: Cool. Will you be going to see *The Greatest Showman*? Do you think?
0: Yeah, probably not. <laughs> it's
1: got um, it's got the Ephronator in it, so um. I'm tempted by the fact that it's it's a musical. I've heard that one main song and I sort of quite like it and the Ephronators in it, but I still don't think I'm going be asked to pay money to go and see it. Yeah. or it's wait till it comes on the Netflix.
0: Yeah, that's my kind of feeling as well. It's like, it's got to be something really special for me to go to the cinema to go and watch
1: it. And I
0: don't know if it is quite that.
1: Yeah. I don't think that it is. No. Cool. Do you have anything else to add?
0: Uh, no, I think that's it from me.
1: Cool, I think that's it from me as well. So thanks a lot for uh, for listening. As always, we really really appreciate it. If you you know, as you as you probably hear on every single podcast that you listen to, please you know, rate, comment, subscribe, leave us a review, all of those things. It really really does help show your appreciation. If you like what we do. And as always, remember you can follow us on Twitter at Big Boys Don't Pod and email us at bigboysdon'tcrypodcast at gmail dot com. We always get we always we love to get your correspondence. You'll always get your emails read out, your tweets talked about. So please do um, please do get in touch. Just like the um, the God's Own Country fan family did in light of last week's episode, they seemed like a really really cool and lovely bunch of people on the Twitters.
0: Yeah, they seemed amazing. I mean, like you can imagine that fans of a film like that would probably be lovely folk um yeah. and yeah it was really nice to see their responses and everything like that
1: i wish that every film had a uh, hashtag fan family
0: <laughs> where's the bridges of madison county fan family <laughs>
1: it's it's inside all of us
0: there, i it's i was i was very very in my heart <laughs> i was very happy to see that there are some bridges of madison county gifs as part of twitter's gif library yeah um
1: Do you you can get get your clint crying yeah Clint Eastwood crying need.
0: in the way. And that is the only gift I need now.
1: Yeah. And on, on that note, we'll leave it there. We'll be back next week to talk about Mamma Mia.
0: Yes, indeed. All right, bye-bye.
1: All right. Bye.